Father God, we love you, Lord. Uh, I thank you for the opportunity to be able to sing your praises, um, to play music with my, my brothers and sisters. Uh, Lord, it's awesome. It really is uh, to be able to practice these things and to be able to, to do our best to praise you uh, so that you get all the glory in our lives. Uh, this morning, Lord, as we go through the chapter 11 of Hosea, Father, I pray that your spirit would touch our hearts. Lord, that this week will have been preparation uh, for the message you have for each and every one of us this morning. I thank you, Father, uh, for your word, that it is alive and sharper than any two-edged sword. And I thank you that it always divides in between what in our life is useless and dross and needs to go away and what in our life is of eternal value. Lord, we pray that you would do that work in our lives this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And children, uh, if you'd like to be dismissed, Mariko, standing in the back there, will take you up to Children's Church where there's snacks, and it's pretty cool. Um, I know we don't have snacks here. <laughs> Hallelujah. I just hear crunching the whole time. So we've been going through Hosea uh, for a while now, and it's actually been a little while since we did um, a Hosea passage. Uh, we're almost done. We're so close. We're actually, chapter 11 is the end of the middle section of the book of Hosea. So I'm going to spend a, a moment just to, to go over what we've gone over in the past, because it's been over a year since we did Hosea 1. So if you remember, and if you don't, it's okay, it's still true, in chapters 1 through 3, that's the first section of Hosea. And in that section, God goes to Hosea in person, and he says, go marry this woman, Gomer, and you're going to have children by her. And this is going to be a picture of what I am going to do with Israel. And so what does Gomer do? Well, she marries him and has three kids, and then she leaves to uh, prostitute herself. And we don't know if she was a prostitute before he married her the first time or not, uh, but she definitely was after. And she left him and, um, yeah, and went to commit adultery. And then God says to Hosea, go and find her and get her back, redeem her. And so he does. And when he finds her, he actually pays half the slave price of a human to buy her back. So whatever state she was in, she was in ter a terrible state. The, her owner, whoever that was, didn't even consider her to be the full value of a slave. Um, that's how worthless she was at that point. And he buys her back. And the Lord is saying in the first part, in these one through three, which is the, the easiest part to read, he's saying, this is what I'm going to do with you, Israel. Right now you are in the part where you are leaving me, where you are pursuing idolatry, where you are whoring yourselves after idols, after other nations. And I'm going to have to let you go and live that life before I can redeem you. And the middle section of Hosea, chapters 4 all the way through 11, is basically God saying, setting up his legal case of why they were so terrible, why they deserved worse than they got. Um, and we're, you've been with me through that. It's been kind of hard to take sometimes. Um, God's declarations of wrath and judgment on Israel has been brutal. And now in chapter 11, we're getting to the end of 
this whole process. And then the, the second, the third part of uh, Hosea, which we will be starting next time, um, is, is beautiful and different in all and of itself. I guess I'll talk about that when I get there. That makes more sense. Um, so here we come to this critical passage. In chapter 11, God is describing something different, not just Israel's sin and his hatred of it, but he's describing a conflict in his own heart about his unfaithful bride. Now, on one hand, their continued actions deserve judgment. And I'm just going to read a couple verses out of Hosea to, to kind of demonstrate this. In Hosea chapter 1, verse 2, he says, They sacrificed to the Baal idols and burned incense to their images. Um, in verse 12, he says, They surround me, God, with lies, and the house of Israel surrounds me with deceit. And then in verse 6 of this chapter, they are obsessed with turning away from me. They call out to Baal instead. So, on one hand, their actions deserve judgment and punishment. They haven't repented. On the other hand, his heart cries out to give them mercy. Like a loving father, he's overcome with tender compassion for his children. And this is one of the most beautiful book, uh, verses in the Bible. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I surrender you, Israel? I've had a change of heart. All my tender compassions are aroused. I cannot carry out my fierce anger. I cannot totally destroy Ephraim. That's God saying that. That's intense. Now, what's beautiful about this is what we learn about God. If God was only just, we would never experience mercy. If he was only justice, pure, unadulterated just, then it would purge the earth of all sin. And it would leave behind um, only desolation, or as one commentator put it, monuments of God's vengeance. But God isn't only just. He is also merciful. Amen? And so here he's crying out his dilemma to anyone who will listen, specifically to the children of Israel. Now, this is great because one attribute of God cannot destroy another. It's not like God has a switch, and it's either on mercy or on judgment, but never both. Right? Um, it's kind of hard to imagine. Like, how does that work exactly? Well, it's not, uh, he can't override one with another. They have to, because they're eternally existent, they're unchanging. He can't just ignore one of his characteristics. So this puts him in kind of this poetic dilemma that we're going to explore today. And it's beautiful because the solution to it is, frankly, why we're here today. The solution to this dilemma is what brought Christ to the cross. Amen? Well, let's dig in. So we're in Hosea chapter 11. Um... And we're going to be reading the whole thing plus an extra verse. If you would stand with me um, in honor of God's word, we'll read it together. When Israel was a young man, I loved him like a son. And I summoned my son out of Egypt. But the more I summoned them, the further they departed from me. Their sacrifices to the ball idols and burned in, they sacrificed uh, to the ball idols and burned incense to images. 
Yet it was I who taught a friend to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of kindness and with bands of love. I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. But they will return to Egypt. Assyria will rule over them because they refuse to repent. A sword will flash in their cities. It will destroy the bars of their city gates and devour them in their fortresses. My people are obsessed with turning away from me. They call to Baal, but he will never exalt them. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I surrender you, Israel? How can I treat you like Adma? How can I make you like Zeboim? I've had a change of heart. My tender compassions are all aroused. I cannot carry out my fierce anger. I cannot totally destroy Ephraim because I am God and not man, the Holy One among you. I will not come in wrath. He will roar like a lion and they will follow the Lord. When he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. They will return in fear and trembling like birds from the sea, like doves, from Assyria, and I will settle them in their homes, declares the Lord. Ephraim has surrounded me with lies. The house of Israel has surrounded me with deceit, but Judah still roams about with God. He remains faithful to the Holy One. Ephraim continually feeds on the wind. He chases the east wind all day and multiplies lies and violence. They make treaties with Assyria and send olive oil as tribute. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So let's look at those first few verses, one through three. When Israel was a young man, I loved him like a son, and I called him out of Egypt. But the more I summoned him, the further he departed from me. Oh, you can't read this without sensing the father's heartbreak, amen? At the loss of his beloved son. And perhaps you as parents um, can relate to the feeling of a child pushing away from you the more you reach out to them. Is there any greater sorrow than the rejection of your love? Matt, maybe not many. God's desire for his children was to remain forever in his love and protection. But there was no place in their hearts for the father who had raised them up and trained them. They were only interested in what they could get out of him. And as soon as the blessings dried up, they hit the road. Can you relate? Can you relate to God? Perhaps parents, maybe. Can you relate to Israel? That's a harder one. I like this quote from one of my commentaries, Garrett's. Um, it says, like a father who's at wit's end over what to do with the wayward child, Yahweh is here at a loss as he tries to resolve the compassion for Israel and the punishment demanded for their sin. It is precisely these texts, or texts such as this, that show that the love of God becomes a vivid reality and not just an abstraction. 
it can't help but bring us back to that image of the prodigal son. You remember the story? The one son demanding his inheritance now, not like that stupid commercial, I want my money and I want it now. The first song, what did he do? He struck off to forge his own path and do as he saw fit. But the father never ceased to await the prodigal son's arrival. I'm, it doesn't say it, but I could imagine him standing out there every evening until the sun is set, thinking, hoping that maybe tonight's the night that he'll come back. For how long? For years? I don't know. That's the kind of love that's being described here that God has for Israel, and he's heartbroken about their sin. Verse 4 I led them with cords of kindness, with bands of love. I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to feed them. There's actually a play of words here. Um, cords, the kindness and love, they're implied, but not literally there. It actually says, I led them with cords of human, which is weird, and bands of leather. But the word for leather and love are very similar. And the words for uh, human and kindness go together, too. I, I'm not going to go into the details, but it's a, it's a poetic play on words. He's saying that I led them with kindness and love. That's what I yoked them with. So the poetry here describes, it, it changes. It goes from a father and his wayward son to God being described as a farmer who loved his animal more like a pet than stock. In other words, he never put a bit in their mouth. He never drove them. He never made them work hard in the field. He loved them more than that. So this is like God's favorite, I don't know, farm animal that he never actually worked because he loved it so much. Um, it's quite literally like um, David describes it. He made them to lie down by still waters and pastures of green. He always provided them. In the wilderness, what did he do? He met all of their needs. When they needed water, there was water. When they needed food, manna from heaven. For how long? For a whole lifetime. Anything they needed, uh, he provided their needs. When they came to the promised land, there's a huge city in the way. Lord, what are you going to do? I got it. I'll take care of it. I'm not going to make you work hard for this. Just follow me. Everything they did that was in obedience to him, God took care of it. Amen? And what was their response? Disobedience. Betrayal. He always provided for them, but now he's going to take away his blessings and protection. Why? Because they need it taken away. No matter what he's done in the past, they have not loved him. They've not turned to him. They've always resented those cords and bands, even though they're made out of compassion and love. And so he's going to give them a new master. He's going to sell them. Indeed, he's going to use his enemies as a tool to humble them. In a very real sense, God is going to give them what they wanted. Remember, 
they sought the comforts of the old life, the old sins, Egypt. And in the text, it talks about how much they admired and looked for safety um, in the people of Assyria. They, um, they spent all of their energy trying to become buddies with Assyria. And so God says, all right, I'll make you buddies with Assyria. You're not going to like it. You're not going to like it at all. So they said, we want the comforts of our old life. We want the comforts of Egypt. And God said, very well, back to slavery you will go. God does not always intervene in our heart's desires. Amen? He instead uses the folly of our desires to draw us to repentance. Okay? He doesn't put walls up all the time to say, no, that's a terrible idea, you shouldn't do that. He does sometimes, especially when we're new in the faith. But as you mature, he says, no, if that's what you want, go ahead. Because you need to get to the point where you no longer want that, and then I can love you. Or, I'm sorry, he always loves us. And then you can love me, is really what he's saying. So he says in verse 5 and 6, they will return to Egypt, which means slavery, Assyria will rule over them because they refuse to repent. A sword will flash in their cities. It will destroy the bars of their gates and will devour them in their fortresses. So let's go back to that first section of Hosea. Gomer ran away from the love of her husband to pursue other men and was completely given over to her lust and desire for that. So when Hosea seeks to redeem her, he finds her a literal slave, right? Having sold herself into prostitution in the pursuit of her heart's desires. So too, the nation of Israel sought the promise of glory, security, and favor from Assyria. And God was going to let them go to their new masters. But like Gomer, they would discover that those promises end in slavery and suffering. Israel's new masters did not love them like God loves them. Where the Lord loved them like his own children and cared for and guided them as his favorite animal, their new masters will dominate them with violence and slavery. If we could just keep that in our mind when we make certain choices in life. Amen? Why is it so easy to step away from the Lord? Why is it so easy to just think, oh, that's pretty, shiny, you know, and, and look at the promises of this world and not see what it is? It's like a fish who knows that's a hook and it's shining, and he knows it's a hook and it's going to end his life, but he can't help himself. He's got to bite it. God would use Assyria, his rod of anger is what he describes Assyria as in Isaiah, to break their stubborn hearts. They had to experience life outside of God's favor in order to receive his redemption. Brothers and sisters, have you experienced life outside of his favor? Anyone? That's it? Oh, I'm scared for the rest of you. Or maybe you're really smart. You have to know what it's like in order to receive that redemption. Otherwise, it doesn't mean anything. Of course he saved me. I'm great, right? No, <laughs> this too is God's grace. How often do we need this same? When we struggle for years with addiction or with sin, it's only because ultimately 
We love those things more than we love God. Woo! I can't believe he said that. That's horrible. I can say that. As, a, as an addict, I can say that. Now, at the time, I didn't think that was true. At the time, I said, yeah, of course I love Jesus with all my heart, mind, and strength. Not. That wasn't true. I was lying to myself. God's grace in our lives necessarily draws us to his love and glorifies the Father, or it pushes us away. Sometimes God's grace is manifested through miraculous healing. Amen? Unexpected blessing. Sometimes it's letting us walk down the path of desolation for a while. Can anyone say amen to that? That is still God's grace. Both roads lead to the Lord, though they don't seem to at the beginning. God's grace is made strong in our weakness. Amen. Let's look at verse 7. My people are obsessed with turning away from me. They turn to Baal, but he will never exalt them. Can we be obsessed with turning away from God? I mean, maybe we don't worship the same idol. Maybe I don't think anyone here has a Baal idol that sometimes they want to worship. I doubt. Um, but we have other things, right? This is interesting because the book of Hosea describes their idolatry or their adultery. He calls it the same thing. Um, it, it's twofold. And this kind of implies that as well. Not only did they worship Baal, they also worshiped the Lord. And this is what makes it doubly bad from God's point of view. Because we have all of these texts throughout Hosea. We have 6, 4, 10, 7, 14, and 16, 9, 4 through 5. And if you want those, they're in the sermon notes. Um, and many others that describe their half-hearted worship to the Lord. Okay, They come to him, but not with their full heart. Or uh, they offer the sacrifices, but he says, I'm going to reject your sacrifices because you're an offense to me. Um, there are all these, these verses that describe that they, hey, they showed up at church. They sang the songs and they, they prayed and they did all the things that the Lord said to do. But what else did they do? They also worshiped Baal. They were also idolaters. And God, this is upsetting to God. I think maybe more than if they just turned away from him altogether, right? Why? Because he is a jealous God, right? His name is jealous. His name is consuming fire. And I think it might be easy for us to assume, okay, well, all this talk in the Old Testament about idolatry, that's not really an issue for me because I've said these words. I, I, you know, I might say that I've believed with my heart and confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord. Amen. Great. Does that mean we can't we 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 don't have to stay vigilant over our hearts to make sure there's not something else creeping in? I I think so. I think we must stay vigilant. You see there's only enough room in there for Jesus or sometimes I think we think there's enough room for Jesus and right? Jesus and, um, I don't know, something. Something that I really like. Money. <laughs> Security. 
uh, I don't know, my country, my family, anything, right? Jesus and that. There's got to be room in my heart for both. And I don't think that's true. I think he demands it all. But now we get to the crux of God's dilemma. Mercy or justice. For the past eight chapters, God has been expounding and expounding and expounding upon the idolatry of his people. He stands as their accuser, and he has laid out the proper punishment for their gleeful idolatry. In Deuteronomy 28, verse 45, it says, at the end of a very long list of curses, all these curses will fall on you, pursuing and overtaking you until you are destroyed, because you would not obey the Lord your God by keeping his commandments and statutes that he has given you. Think about what that says. And those curses, by the way, are not pleasant. He's saying, I will curse you until you are utterly destroyed because of this. But then we have verses 8 and 9 in chapter 11 of Hosea. And we're prevented with this powerful statement from the Lord. He doesn't want to do that. He doesn't want to. Why? Because he loves them. God's divine justice and, and mercy, apparently, from our point of view, they seem to be at war. What's he going to do? He has to destroy him because he doesn't lie, but he loves them and he doesn't want to destroy them. And he only does what he wants. So what's going to happen? Well, let's find out. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I surrender you, O Israel? How can I treat you like Adma? How can I make you like Zeboim? I've had a change of heart. All <clears throat> oh, my tender compassions are aroused. I cannot carry out my fierce anger. I cannot totally destroy a frame because I am God and not man, the Holy One among you, and I will not come in wrath. Wow. Well, let's break this down for a minute. First of all, who's Adma and Zeboim? I had to look it up because I had no idea. Does anyone else, does anyone have an idea? I'd be surprised. I was like, weird. Like, okay, Adma Zeboim. Like, I better find out who they are in order to write this sermon. Turns out they're not people. They're cities. Um, and we, if we go back to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, we can find insight on what this means. So if you remember all the way back to Genesis 19, we're told, excuse me, we're told that the Lord overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah with, you know, fire from heaven. Uh, but it actually says, overthrew those cities and all in the valley. So it kind of implies that there were more than just those two cities destroyed in that judgment. In fact, in Deuteronomy 29:23, it uh, warning Israel says that the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim, which the Lord destroyed in his intense anger, etc., etc., so Adma and Zeboim were two of the other cities. So it's not just Sodom and Gomorrah. It's Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim. Um, so there was more than just those two. But it kind of begs the question, because why didn't he just say Sodom and Gomorrah? Like, if you go through the prophecies of Isaiah and Jeremiah and, and I don't know, any, anything else, you'll see Sodom and Gomorrah mentioned a lot as warnings to Israel to stay holy. Why does Hosea 
in this spot not use Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, scholars really don't know. They don't know why he doesn't mention it, because he does in other parts of Hosea. But I think it's interesting, because this intentional obfuscation is, I think it's important, because it implies that those two famous dens of sin were not nor will not be the only people to face the wrath of the Lord. Sometimes we can say, well, God dealt with that problem there and we're good. Not necessarily. They're not the only cities that will, will be or have been destroyed because of their intense sin and rebellion against the Lord. In fact, in Matthew chapter 10 and in chapter 11, Jesus um, has some pretty harsh words for the cities that won't take the disciples in when they go, and specifically for one of the cities that kicked him out. And he basically says that they would, it would be better for them to be Sodom and Gomorrah than to be them and where they're headed. So I think it's interesting because it takes the focus off of the Sodom and Gomorrah story and it reminds us that God is holy and God is the judge. But what does this phrase mean? I've had a change of heart. I have no doubt that for some of you, this may be causing some unease. Anyone? God changed his heart? Surely, God is unchanging. Amen? He's constant. In fact, he's outside of time. How could he change his mind or his heart? Well, this is sort of complicated. First, we have to understand that the phrase here is an idiom. Okay, it's a Hebrew idiom, and it literally means something along the lines of, like, um, I've, I've been overturned within me. Okay? Like we say, I have, we have an upset stomach. We don't actually mean that our stomach is mad, just that it's overturned. It's feeling queasy. So in this particular sense, it's an idiom, it, and it means to be overturned. The other thing we have to understand is, is twofold. God does not change. Amen? He is. He just is. But the actions he chooses to do and perform, those depend on the context of the situation. Right? Um, so we have to think about this because there's a lot of verses I could read to you. And I'm going to, actually. This is going to be helpful. So we know he doesn't change. It says uh, in 1 Samuel 15 verse 19, the preeminent one of Israel does not go back on his word or change his mind, for he is not a human being who changes his mind. In Malachi 3, 6, it says, since I, the Lord, do not go back on my promises to you, son of Jacob, um, you have not perished. And then we have the opposite. We have... Um, that he does change what he's doing depending on the situation. In Deuteronomy 32, verse 36, it says, The Lord will judge his people and will change his plans concerning his servants when he sees that their power has disappeared and that there is no one left confined or free. So the Lord will relent from something that he's doing. In Jeremiah 26, 13, But correct the way, uh, excuse me, but the correct but correct the way you have been living and do what is right. Obey the Lord your God. And if you do, the Lord will forgo destroying you as he threatened he would. And there's so many more. 
Um, I'm not going to read them all. But we have this clear idea that God himself doesn't change. His mercy is always his mercy, and his justice is always his justice. And the two always work together. Sometimes we don't understand how that works, but they never change. God never changes. But what he does depends on our hearts and our position. Amen? If you repent, he relents. Sometimes. So, within God at this moment, there's a friction between his perfect justice and his perfect mercy. And one can't ever dominate the other because both are eternal and unchanging. So in the end, these two attributes reveal themselves in God's holiness. What do I mean by that? He says in here, because I am God and not man, the holy one among you, I will not come in wrath. Holiness is interesting. That's an interesting term. And just so you know, it doesn't actually say he will not come in wrath. It literally says, I will not enter the city. This is important because if you remember back to Sodom and Gomorrah, if the Holy One were to personally enter into the midst of the people like he did in Sodom, he would be forced to destroy it. The holiness of God recalls the, um, his time in the camp of Israel where he demanded that they keep holy and or keep him separate thus for example israel had to uh, keep everything that was defiled away from yahweh's tent because yahweh is a holy god in the midst of israel he chose to avoid entering the city lest he should have to destroy it entirely his holiness demands that he expunge everything that's not holy this refusal to enter the city is an act of judgment saying, I'm not going to be among you. You're going to be without me. But it's also an act of mercy because he's saying, if I go in with you, I will have to kill you. And I don't want to. Have you, has the Lord ever felt distant to you? Have you ever felt that void in your soul where the Holy Spirit should dwell and it just feels empty and gone? I'm convinced that this is for the same reason as here. God can't be a party to sin. So if we intentionally idolize, if we intentionally pursue sin, we depart from the presence of the Lord. And this is a mercy. Why? Well, because he doesn't have to destroy us. That's wonderful. But for the reason that the whole leaves an aching uh, loss of what should reside there. And eventually that ache burns bright enough that our lust for the pleasure is outshone by our desire to be whole again. Has anyone experienced this? Yeah, I think that's why it happens. I think the Lord steps out of us because he says he's got to go on his way. He's got to, he's an idiot. He's got to do it. And you know, I'm talking about myself here. And after I do it for a while and I come back, he says, I told you you were an idiot. And I said, I'm sorry. You know, uh, but it's a mercy. Hallelujah. So let's keep moving. He will roar like a lion. This is verse 10. And they will follow the Lord. When he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. They will return in fear, trembling like birds from Egypt, like doves from Assyria, and I will settle them in their homes, declares the Lord. In the end, God chose mercy. Hallelujah. His justice wasn't fully um, fulfilled. In fact, every single time he withholds completely destroying everything, 
his justice is being withheld. He's in patience. He's holding back his justice and building up a case. Who does he pour that upon? Christ. All of his justice gets poured out on Christ. He's saving it for himself to pour out. So in the end, God chose mercy, though perhaps not how we would expect. He would give the children of Israel the northern kingdom, over to their, the desires of their wicked hearts. They could have Assyria, and Assyria would have them. And they would be crushed and captured and enslaved in a foreign land for generations. But he would also someday call them home. Hallelujah. So there is a passage. Excuse me. Now, the application of this is might be unsettling for us, steeped in Western Christian culture. How could the destruction of your country and the death of your family and friends and slavery for everyone else who survived for the rest of their lives, how could that be mercy? I mean, you've got to remember, the conquest of Israel was terrible. Deuteronomy 28, that section about the curses, he describes what's going to happen in that. He says that you will be so hungry in your cities that you will eat your children. How could that be the result of tender compassion aroused and not pure wrath? Jeremiah 29, verses 11 through 13. I'm pretty sure... Yeah, it's emblazoned on every high school graduate's Bible, amen? And um, most throw pillows and Hobby Lobby probably have some part of this on there. This is one of our favorite verses to give people, amen? For I know the plans that I, uh, uh, I am making concerning you, declares Yahweh, plans for prosperity and not for harm, to give you a future and a hope. Stop there for a second. The implied message is clear when we put this on our Bibles and give them away. It says, you know what? Go forth in the knowledge that God has your back. Life is your oyster because you went to church and read your Bible. Now, don't stray into the world. And if you don't, the Lord will bless every single one of your endeavors. Every business you start, it's going to be beautiful, right? That's the implied message that we kind of mean when we do this. As well-intentioned as that sort of idea is, that is not what this passage is saying. For one thing, Jeremiah wrote this to a people who literally, in a few years after reading this, were going to spend the rest of their lives in bondage and slavery in Babylon. Well, that seems like a weird thing to write to them. Um, after the men fell in battle and the children were slaughtered, and the women raped, the survivors would go off to a life of slavery, and none of them would ever again see freedom. Their children would, but they wouldn't. God was going to hand his children over to their enemies on purpose, and he just wrote this, for I know the plans I am making concerning you, plans for prosperity and not for harm, to give you a future and a hope. What on earth does he mean? See, that wasn't the end of their story. 
He wasn't telling them that their life was going to be rosy from now on. He was saying, in spite of what's about to happen for you, I need you to remember something important. This isn't the end of the story. He's telling them that their time as sojourners in a foreign land will not last forever. They have to go because of their unfaithfulness, but it's not going to last forever. Indeed, brothers and sisters, we are sojourners in a foreign land. Amen? Hallelujah. It's not going to last forever. It might get worse, but it's not going to last forever. God doesn't promise us that in this life we'll be comfortable or happy or secure, or that we'll live it long or surrounded with friends and family. None of those things are guaranteed. Um, And there's no promises in here that you can say, okay, he gave me all the happiness I could want. Not in this world. In him, absolutely, but not in circumstances. Now, many of us have found the disaster at the end of the road, and we've come home repentant and humbled. Some of us are still resisting. Some of us are extending our time in foreign land for the sake of petty pleasures. But all of us are given the same choice. Brothers and sisters, when you search for me, then you will find me if you seek me with your whole heart. Let's look at uh, verse 12 and 12.1. A frame has surrounded me with lies. The house of Israel has surrounded me with deceit. But Judah still roams about with God. He remains faithful to the Holy One. A frame continually feeds on the wind and chases the east wind all day. He multiplies lies and violence and makes treaties with Assyria and sends olive oil as tribute to Egypt. So the first son, Israel, or Ephraim, same thing, he's already made his choice. The second son, God describes Judah here as still walking with God and remaining faithful to the Holy One. And if you remember in the prodigal son, there are, in fact, two sons. And I'm not saying the prodigal son is about this particular situation, but it is helpful to understand this situation. Um, this description reminds me of that second son. Remember, the first son went off to self-discover. Let's put it that way. And the second one, son stayed home with his father. Now, the second son has his own issues, and we're going to get to that in chapter 12 some other time. But for the nonce, he remained faithful to the brother while his other brother hoard his life away. Now, we have to remember a few weeks ago, or I would say weeks, it's been months, um, we talked about how some of the people in the nation of Israel repented and went south to Jerusalem before the Assyrians came in. There's always a remnant of those who remain faithful to the Lord, even while the lion's share walk away. Hallelujah. Amen? The men's group and I, we we were talking last week about how, based on the scripture, there will always be a brother or sister who's a Jew who believes, because there's a guaranteed remnant. That no matter what happens, there will always be at least some. See, what's often misunderstood about the parable of the prodigal son is the reason for his ultimate repentance. Now, I'm sure if I were to poll you um, about why he had to repent and go back, 
I, I know that you would all remember the feeding of the unclean pigs, and the reason why he got there was because he spent all of his money, right? But there's a, there's a nugget here that's easy to miss and shocking in its implication. He did spend all of his money on prodigal living. But there was something else that happened. It says in the text, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. Yeah, his unwise, selfish spending made him vulnerable, but it was an act of God that broke him. A mercy of God that brought him to his knees. Like the Israelites, we are all called to repentance And it is by God's grace that we find ourselves in a position to repent at all. Amen? He will allow you to walk away knowing that as grace like rain who pours down on sinner and righteous alike pours upon you, you will be forced to either repent and turn home, humbled, prepared for a new life, or hardened beyond any hope. salvation. Now, we're not called to figure out who around us is the former and who is the latter. Hallelujah, because I'm terrible at it, right? I thought I was doomed, and here I am. Hallelujah. We are called to be partakers and uh, messengers of God's grace. He says, my grace is sufficient for you, For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. We have the privilege, brothers and sisters, of drawing others into the loving arms of Christ. And in order to do that, we have to be right with him first. Uh, Have you come into the arms of God? Have you repented? That means to turn away from, to reject Have you repented from the life you led? Is that life taking you away from Christ? Because remember, God's justice demanded destruction of the sinners. And instead of destruction of the sinners, God sent his son, who was the only non-sinner to ever exist, and he destroyed him on our behalf. The invitation is open to all of us. The grace flows out. It flows like rain right here, right now, everywhere you go. There are people all around you, some who've received the grace and some who are being hardened by by it. If you haven't received it, brother or sister, I pray that today uh, you would grab me or Pastor Paul or someone and talk and pray and come to the cross and experience what your life is really about.